this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i am amit barua your host for today pakistan is a key player in the politics of afghanistan the taliban takeover of afghanistan is seen as a strategic victory for pakistan one of the three countries that recognized the islamic emirate back in 1997 How critical is Western recognition and aid for the survival of the Taliban and the Afghan people? Will Pakistan come under pressure from the rest of the world if the Taliban continue to exclude women and minorities from the governance structure? Will the Taliban continue its previous policy of sheltering the Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups, or will they show a new face to the world? To answer these questions and some more, we have with us uh, Shuja Nawaz. Distinguished fellow at the South Asia Center of the Washington-based Atlantic Council, brother of former Pakistani Army Chief Asif Nawaz, he has authored a much-celebrated book on the Pakistan Army called Cross Swords: Pakistan, Its Army, and the Wars Within. Welcome to In Focus, Mr. Shuja Nawaz. Thank you, Amit. Good to be with you. Shuja Sahab, tell us what do you make of the interim government that was announced in Afghanistan by the Taliban? well i think it's significant that they're calling it an interim government uh, because they'd made a promise that it would be an inclusive government and they've tried to bring in people of different ethnic groups but not in the key positions so it remains to be seen to what extent the conversations that they had begun with uh, people like uh, former president karzai um, and and uh, dr abdullah abdullah have borne fruit uh, it appears that uh, they are not going to go with the well known and established political actors in afghanistan from the previous regime uh, and that they basically tried to have a, uh, an interim government that is balancing the countervailing forces within the afghan taliban themselves and here if i may go into a little detail uh, we were seeing even before the fall of kabul uh, some differences in the way that the political affairs team which was negotiating at doha uh, was saying and doing things and the military commission that was headed uh, by uh, siraj hakani as well as uh, mullah yaqub the son of mullah umar um, how they were proceeding as if uh, what the political people were saying in doha didn't matter and they were continuing to push and try and capture more and more provincial capitals it could be that this was part of a grand scheme or it could be that there are tensions within the groups that they've tried to resolve by having all of them take key positions in in this cabinet but right. it is really a return to the old guard and it's not the new face of the taliban that people were expecting so you would say taliban 1.0 all over the all over again for the time being uh, and we have to wait to see how they behave because they are much more sophisticated uh, with their messaging uh, their public face uh, is now includes people who use the media uh, who don't shun the media who speak uh, english also uh, so they can communicate with the world Uh, and they are giving a little bit here and there in order to create uh, the conditions 
that will reopen uh, humanitarian assistance and economic assistance to Afghanistan. And there are a number of things that are coming down the pike, uh, I think, which will affect uh, their future decisions as well as the relationship between the Taliban government and the rest of the world. But uh, Pashtuns make up, uh, Mr. Nawaz, uh, 90% of the new government. There are no Hazaras in the government and there are no women either. Do you think such a governance structure will be acceptable to the international community? I think the international community is looking for much more inclusiveness. And we have to wait to see how they react. And starting off with the regional groupings, there will be a meeting next week of the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization. Uh, it'll be critical to see what the SCO says and does uh, and what influence they have on the actions of the, the Taliban in, in uh, reforming their administration and uh, filling the gaps that you've identified. Right. You also mentioned about Sirajuddin Haqqani. And the Taliban actually have uh, uh, issued an official statement saying that the U.S. has gone back on its commitment in Doha and not uh, removed uh, uh, people like Haqqani or from the sanctions list. Do you think that this is about to happen or will the U.S. use this as leverage against uh, the Taliban? I'm sure that there was discussion about this and I'm sure that the United States will see to what extent it can use whatever le little leverage it has remaining in getting more out of the Taliban, particularly to protect people that the United States has left behind in Afghanistan, which includes women and which includes people that work with aid organizations and NGOs. Um, I think they've taken a large number of the people that work directly with the U.S. military or with the U.S. government. But yes, I think we're going to wait to see. Uh, and recall that the United States can shift its policies on these matters. Um, you may recall yourself and, um, that uh, when, uh, when uh, Prime Minister Modi was uh, elected prime minister, uh, they had uh, earlier refused to give him a visa for the United States and that restriction was removed. Um, so this is not obviously at the same scale, but the United States can pivot, and I think they will. Uh, there are two other events that I think we should be looking at. Uh, uh, one is uh, more near term, and that is the, um, you know, th there's going to be uh, a meeting of the UN on the 13th uh, of the humanitarian organizations in Geneva. And we have to see whether they think that the conditions are ripe for humanitarian assistance to, to resume in a big way and uh, in a coordinated fashion uh, inside Afghanistan uh, in such a way that it doesn't uh, leak into the hands of the Taliban, uh, but goes directly to the people for whom it is intended. And the second uh, date that we have to look for is in October, uh, from the 11th to the 17th, which will be the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank because uh, that will give some credibility to this government if it is recognized that the interim government satisfies the organizations and uh, they can release the funds that belong to the Taliban uh, government or to Afghanistan. Uh, 
um, and so that the Taliban government can take control of those funds, including the August uh, allocation of uh, special drawing rights of the IMF. Do you see that happening? Uh, if that were to happen, that would send a signal to the Taliban that the rest of the world is keen on doing business with them? I think, uh, as I said, we have to see all these steps to see whether we reach that stage in October. Uh, it is eminently possible that even if the United States alone decides to oppose it, but the European um, allies uh, go along with the uh, with the idea of uh, reopening ties between the international financial institutions and Afghanistan, uh, that the U.S. may not be able to stop that from happening. This has happened in other instances in the past, uh, but that's one scenario. Uh, the other scenario is that the U.S. would use its 18% or whatever uh, um, quota or share of the quota at the IMF and uh, bring others along uh, with enough weight to be able to say no. And that will affect the ability of the Afghan government to deal with uh, the world on, on, on business and trade. But these other instances uh, before that, the SCO meeting as well as the UN uh, meeting in Geneva, will give us a foretaste of what's to come. In a recent piece that you wrote for the East Asia Forum, uh, you said that Pakistan will face a tough choice if Western powers withhold diplomatic recognition and economic aid from a Taliban-dominated government. Uh, could you uh, expand on that? Um, what do you mean by the tough choices that Pakistan might face? Well, it's a very simple uh, choice. Uh, does Pakistan want to go back to the situation that it found itself in uh, in the uh, late 90s when uh, it was one of, as you said in your introduction, one of only three countries that recognized uh, the Taliban. Uh, and uh, remember in 1999, who was the foreign minister of uh, the Taliban? Uh, the man who is now going to be uh, the, the senior most member in the government, uh, essentially the prime minister. So uh, there was really no foreign relations as such for the Taliban, and Pakistan um, was somewhat isolated on the global scene as a result and suffered the consequences of that for quite some time. So Pakistan will be looking at that uh, possibility. Uh, but as I said, if beginning with the SCO, there is a positive movement to having a relationship with this government in order to be able to influence its decisions vis-a-vis -vis human rights, vis-a-vis -vis women, access to resources, um, and distribution of humanitarian assistance to the needy without any let or hindrance, then uh, Pakistan may be in a better position uh, if, if a larger group of people, starting with the neighbors, um, begins to recognize this government. Um, so we have to see how that evolves. We recently saw the ISI chief, uh, Faiz Hamid, go to Kabul and uh, meet with the Taliban leadership. What's the kind of message you think he was conveying to them? I don't know what the exact message was, but I'm sure that you know he, he was well briefed um, as a result of his recent visits uh, to China and to the United States. And he may have conveyed to them um, a fairly accurate picture of the kind of issues that they would face in dealing with the rest of the world, 
but also the issues that Pakistan faces um, as a friend of Afghanistan and the people of Afghanistan, uh, so that if uh, they they go towards the extreme end of the spectrum, that it would be difficult to support their activity. Uh, I think that would be an important message uh, for him to convey. However, at the same time, he has to retain that channel of communication with them. Because if you remember, in the 90s, um, they were very difficult to deal with. Uh, Mullah Umar um, had a track record of saying no to many requests that Pakistan made. Uh, a very celebrated uh, event, if you recall, was the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas, where Pakistan uh, actually made an attempt seriously uh, with a high-level delegation uh, to persuade him that uh, this was not something that was sanctioned by Islam or the Quran or, or, or all the guidance that uh, Muslims had about treating other religions and their symbols. And uh, he said no, um, and then proceeded to destroy them. So that was just one instance. And so it's, I think General Faiz Hamid had to have this balance between retaining a relationship, influencing them at the same time, and, and gently persuading them to understand uh, the sentiment that he must have gathered from his, his recent trips uh, abroad um, with the foreign minister and with the national security advisor. However, that said, uh, the, the optics of the fact that the senior most Pakistani to visit Kabul was the head of the intelligence um, uh, was something that was an unintended consequence. And I think that doesn't um, sit well uh, in terms of the building of the relationship. Uh, uh, civilian to civilian interaction um, at such a public level would have probably been the preferred option. But uh, that is, uh, you know, he also said that, uh, uh, you know, he said uh, that uh, everything will be okay. That's what he said on the 4th of September. I mean, what is your sense of uh, what he meant by everything will be okay? I mean, is it that uh, the ISI, the Pakistan army and Pakistan will be able to influence the Taliban to keep to a mo moderate path? Is that your sense? I don't know what he meant by that cryptic comment. Um, I think one would only assume that uh, there's an attempt being made by Pakistan uh, not to be a spokesperson uh, for the, the Taliban. Um, that shouldn't be the case uh, in any case. Um, and uh, that uh, the Taliban must have given some assurances of what their plans are uh, regarding uh, meeting the reservations that have been expressed about their uh, current government as well as uh, their direction as well as their past by the international community. Uh, Pakistan is a member of that international community, beginning with being a member of the regional community that is engaging um, with, uh, with the Taliban, which includes Russia, which includes China, which includes um, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, all those countries, um, and, and Iran. So um, I think it, Pakistan speaks um, as a friend of Afghanistan, uh, and it needs to connect with the people of Afghanistan. Uh, Mr. Nawaz, uh, from what we've seen, uh, you know, in the last few days since uh, 
the 15th of August when the, Tab uh, when the Taliban officially took over Kabul. Uh, there have been instances of protests by women. Uh, there have been instances uh, where journalists have been beaten for doing their job. Uh, so how, uh, I mean, if this is the image that the Taliban are projecting, uh, these, one can argue that these are early days. But if this is the image that they are projecting, and uh, their higher education minister recently also said that uh, you know none of their uh, Taliban leaders have uh, you know had an uh, had a formal education, and piety was what was important as far as uh, they were concerned. So if this is an attitude and this is the approach, uh, do you think that uh, uh, the Taliban will actually be able to get international recognition or at least engagement? Well, as I said, uh, we're going to see what the international aid organizations and particularly the humanitarian uh, aid organizations of the UN decide next week. And uh, that will be a very good indication of uh, the state of engagement with Afghanistan um, to see whether there are assurances that have been issued by this government. Uh, the instances that you talk about are disturbing. Um, and they should be, because Afghanistan of today is not the Afghanistan of the 90s. Uh, this is a very young and a vibrant population. It is a very large uh, urban population. Uh, and uh, young people, particularly women, have been in the workplace and in educational institutions. Uh, there are many more educational institutions a much larger number of women um, going to school at all levels, uh, at the primary, secondary, and, and upper levels. Uh, the fact that the American University in uh, Kabul uh, has apparently also started uh, classes again, uh, albeit under different rules um, of co-ed education, um, is something to, to look at. Uh, and let's see if the Taliban allow an expansion of those areas uh, so that uh, they will have, as they said themselves, a need for trained, educated people to run government. Uh, piety has its place in every society, but um, you, you need technocrats, you need bureaucrats. Uh, and if they alienate uh, those people, um, they will lose that ability to have a functioning uh, progressive modern government, uh, even though it may be an Islamic emirate, they will still need an effective government operating under relatively modern lines. The UN Secretary General has warned of an economic meltdown in Afghanistan, which he also says will be a gift for terrorists. How, how serious is uh, such a threat, in your opinion, uh, Mr. Nawaz? I think this should be the primary focus of the Taliban government. Uh, to to allow people to get back to uh, economic uh, activities on a regular basis without let or hindrance, without imposing conditions on them. Uh, unfortunately, there was such a total dependence on foreign assistance and particularly U.S. assistance. And uh, as a result of the U.S. war effort and the spending that occurred in Afghanistan, it had created, uh, I would say, a kind of an addiction and created a false economy, which was dependent on uh, U.S. activities, military activities in Afghanistan. 
that has gone. So now there have to be different types of activities and productive activities. Uh, one of the good things that the Taliban have said, and we have to see if they follow through on this, is that they will cut down on uh, narcotics, uh, which is what they said initially when they took over in the 90s also. Uh, but there have been reports uh, in the intervening period that they allowed uh, the operation of these uh, narcotics cartels because uh, they were getting um, certain quote-unquote taxes from uh, the trading of, of narcotics. Now, their neighbors don't want narcotics because uh, they travel through the neighboring countries and there's leakage of narcotics into Iran, into the Central Asian republics, into Russia on its way to Europe, as well as into Pakistan. So um, they're going to have to rethink the economic activities and reopen opportunities for other forms of agriculture, uh, as well as uh, possibilities of export, uh, which brings up the issue of trade, uh, which brings up connectivity between Central Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India also. I think these are all issues that uh, will have to be discussed on a regional basis, but uh, the Taliban are going to be key to opening those uh, pathways. And how serious uh, do you think uh, is uh, Taliban's previous support to groups like Al-Qaeda and the fact, as, as you mentioned, that uh, uh, people like Mullah Omar, uh, you know, really didn't uh, adhere to Western requests or even Pakistani requests uh, to hand over Osama bin Laden at that time? Well, there, the, there was obviously um, a, a less organized and less strong Taliban government in that first incarnation, uh, which allowed uh, groups to come in and set up operations inside Afghanistan. And once they were there, they were considered guests because they were fellow Muslims uh, in the large part. And so uh, Al-Qaeda and, and the Taliban had that kind of symbiotic relationship. Um, the, the groups that have been supporting them uh, that have come from across the border in Pakistan uh, the Tariqa Taliban Pakistan, for instance, have also had some relationship with some of these uh, terrorist organizations in the past. Uh, there are also reports that some of the Punjabi Taliban uh, who have joined the fight in Afghanistan uh, have, have had subcontractual relationships with Al-Qaeda and other militant groups. Uh, so question is, Will uh, the Taliban be able to control the operation of these groups within their territory? Remember that the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, is very long and very rugged and very tough to monitor, despite the fact that the Pakistanis say they built 98% uh, or more of the fence in that border. But, you know, fences uh, are really no, are not a secure barrier uh, as the United States will tell you in its border with Mexico or, or India will tell you in the in the Kashmir area. Fences don't work 100% and uh, the people that want to get across, get across. Moreover, they create political and economic problems uh, for the countries concerned because in this case, the Durand line cuts across tribal boundaries. And so you're stopping people who are related to each other from meeting and regularly and without hindrance. So all of these things have to be taken into account. Um, 
Will the Taliban be able to control that ungoverned space, which is the borderlands of Afghanistan and Pakistan? That's a big question. Will they have to rely on the Pakistan military to maintain a strong presence along that border? I think that is something to be seen. Does Pakistan want to continually have that extra burden of cost and operations um, without any uh, any uh, subvention that was coming originally from the United States? And that hasn't been available for, for years now. So all of these are questions that will feature in the internal discussions in Kabul and in the discussions between Islamabad and Kabul and Rawalpindi, Islamabad and Kabul. Mr. Nawaz, I'm going to leave you with the last question. I mean, we saw the rapidity with which uh, the Ghani government uh, collapsed. And we saw that the Taliban really swept the country and uh, you know they took over power uh, very quickly. Uh, you spoke of the ungoverned spaces earlier. Uh, do you see that, uh, you know, if the Taliban can't get its act together, do you see uh, the rest of the world, the UN, the US, other powers, China, Russia, is there any appetite to uh, for the in international community to intervene again in Afghanistan or is that uh, appetite now dead and gone? I think the easy answer is that uh, the the world um, is, is very absorbed with much more domestic issues. Uh, and very quickly, I can say that the United States is already uh, approaching midterm elections. Uh, it has a COVID problem uh, that uh, doesn't seem to go away with uh, a very large percentage of its population that refuses to, be, to take the vaccination. Uh, and that is feeding into the political divide between uh, Trumpism on the one hand and uh, and Biden and the Democrats on the other. Uh, there'll be a, a fresh presidential election coming up. Uh, in Pakistan, you have an election coming up in, in, in 2023. Um, so there will be a focus on either having an early election or waiting uh, for the run-up to the 2023 elections and building up for that. And the, the idea of engaging or getting caught up in in yet another conflict uh, as a bystander or a facilitator for Pakistan is going to be very tough. Uh, Iran uh, is, is also facing uh, choices regarding um, its senior leadership. Uh, and I think that will be affecting its decisions. And Iran continues to have a very powerful economic and political interest in Afghanistan, not just because of the Shia population, but because it has direct links between Western Afghanistan and, and Iran's uh, economic links and, and so on. So, uh, and China is, is, has got investments that it wants to make good in Afghanistan. So nobody really wants to have a conflict in Afghanistan. At the same time, I think uh, the international community and the region uh, would be making a mistake if somehow they thought they could ignore Afghanistan uh, and contain whatever occurs within Afghanistan, within the country, because that will not happen. It will cross the borders and it will affect uh, the neighboring countries. And it may affect the world. Um, if, as you said, uh, some of these militant and terrorist groups um, use it as a base again. Uh, so um, I think some very serious thinking has to be done. Uh, looking not at the near term and not at the next elections, but looking slightly over the horizon 
as to how to make Afghanistan a productive part of a region, which is going to be very critical um, because it, so, the greater South Asia region, in my view, uh, will remain as a powerful counterbalance to China's rise within Asia and within the global economy. And I think it's important to have uh, such groupings uh, and connectivity in the region, which has been missing in the past. So all of these things have to come together. And uh, I should mention the risks. There are risks of political upheaval in in many of these countries, uh, including in the Central Asian republics. There, there are risks of political upheaval in Iran. Uh, there, there may be a risk of uh, political upheaval in Pakistan. Uh, and it could be caused by natural disasters, by accidents, any number of black swan events uh, for which these societies and economies are ill-prepared, uh, as the COVID epidemic has shown. Uh, it has shown the weaknesses within the Indian system within the Pakistani system, although they seem to have gotten away with it and have done slightly better. Uh, but even now, um, COVID is raging. And so they're going to have to pull themselves out of an economic hole. And I think in that context, uh, an open trading uh, interconnected system that links South Asia to Central Asia uh, is going to be very critical. And if Iran uh, and the U.S. managed to resolve their differences, linking Iran, Pakistan, and India uh, is going to be very critical. So I, let me end on this optimistic note that I hope um, the region will take the lead and that it's not left to the United States alone to try and resolve issues, uh, and that the region shouldn't depend on Western Europe and the United States to pull things together for Afghanistan. It, it should be a regional effort and a regional responsibility. And then the Taliban should be held accountable uh, so that they have a results-based system in place, which allows them to benefit from economic assistance uh, from outside. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Mr. Shuja Nawaz, for talking to the Hindus In Focus podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.